You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's the summer of the year 2000. Gas is $1.26 a gallon. X-Men is in theaters. And you're about to sit down with your new copy of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, right after you hang out with your friends in the backyard for some burgers and hot dogs. You go to squirt some ketchup on your hamburger, but the ketchup is purple. Well, if you don't like the purple one, you could have the blue or the teal, but you better eat it soon. It won't be around for long. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Folks who've listened to the show for a while know that I don't usually return to individual topics. But doing so today does give me an excuse to run a George Carlin quote, and that's all I need. Where the hell is the blue food? Every other color is represented. I mean, every... Okay. Red is raspberry, cherry, and strawberry. Orange is orange. Yellow is lemon. Green is lime. Brown is meat. There's no blue food. Why the hell was blue left out of the food thing? Somebody's got the blue food, goddammit. Somebody's got it. It probably bestows immortality. That's why we haven't been given any. And don't say blueberries, we know they're purple. Of course, Carlin recorded that long before blue corn chips were available at every mega mart and gas station. It's strange when you think about how there are nearly no blue foods, when blue is such a common color in our world. Birds and butterflies are blue, some flowers are blue, of the 7.8 billion people on Earth have blue eyes, and the whole dang sky is blue. Two questions then lay before us. Why is there no naturally occurring blue food, or so little of it? And why does artificially colored blue food taste like a red fruit? Blue foods are indeed rare in nature, because leaves are green. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. The colors in plants come from naturally occurring pigments. Chlorophyll provides green and blue-green shades. Carotenoids provide yellow, orange, and red. And anthocyanins provide red, purple, and a few shades of blue. Plants use green chlorophyll to photosynthesize, to turn sunlight into energy. Plants also need to get their flowers pollinated and their seeds spread so many of them evolved to have flowers or fruits in bright, warm colors that would stand out against the green background. They really make it pop, you could say. If you want every graphic designer in a half-mile radius to shudder in disgust, blue anthocyanins are chemically less stable than other pigments, so carotenoids tend to dominate them. You need very precise environmental and chemical conditions to get a dominant blue color. Things could have been very different, though. Scientists speculate that 
Before the proliferation of chlorophyll, primitive organisms used a pigment called retinol. Retinol is purple, meaning forests and lawns would look like crown royal bags. In that case, the opposing color would be yellow. Without chlorophyll, we might well be asking the question, why are there no yellow foods? With blue foods being rare in nature, blue was not a color that our primitive ancestors associated with nourishment. In fact, quite the opposite. Blue was bad. Blue was mold. Blue would make you sick. The earliest agrarians weren't exactly going to propagate things that reminded them of the time they almost pooped themselves to death. Diarrhea is one of the leading causes of death throughout history, after all. Jump forward a few millennia with me to answer our second question. Why is raspberry blue? And we're all just kind of going along with it, especially at a time when we could combine any color with any flavor you can think of. There are two stages to this answer. How raspberry became paired with blue food dye and why blueberry specifically did not. The weak link in the chain of making the flavor match the appearance was the rich rubescent red dye number two. In 1976, it was banned from food products as a carcinogen, but it had been controversial off and on for decades. It was during one of those periods of controversy in the late 1950s that the gold medal company of Cincinnati, Ohio decided to stop using it. One company discontinuing one color wouldn't usually start a trend, but gold medal was the maker of the first reliable cotton candy machine and supplier of the colored flavored sugars to go in them. Gold medal dropped red dye number two but they still had heaps of raspberry flavoring. For reasons that cannot be substantiated beyond it was what we had, Gold Medal opted to marry raspberry flavor to blue food color. The ubiquity of cotton candy at festivals, fairs, and carnivals every summer helped to give the concept of blue raspberry a toehold in the public consciousness. It got another significant boost after red dye number two was banned when the manufacturers of Otter Pops, those delightful corner-of-the-mouth lacerating frozen baggies of sugar water, and Icy, the precursor to 7-Eleven Slurpee. They found blue raspberry to be not only a way to address the need to color raspberry with something, it also helped to make raspberry visually distinct from things like cherry, strawberry, and watermelon. Food manufacturers have long understood that brightly colored foods are especially appealing to that segment of the population with no money of their own, but great influence on purchasing decisions. Children. The food doesn't even need a specific flavor, so long as it's cartoonishly bright. A beverage trade magazine from the 1920s pointed out that children preferred fuchsia lemonade, even though the only thing different from the regular lemonade was the color. Manufacturers were primed to think about bright colors when the baby boom of the post-World War II era brought about another sudden increase, an ice cream boom. Product appearance was suddenly more important than ever as displays became increasingly crowded. Blue raspberry left the carnival and moved into people's homes, 
via their grocer's freezer case. One more factor that helped to cement the whole blue raspberry thing was the 4th of July, American Independence Day, an especially big deal in the year that red dye number two was taken off the market, 1976, the 200th birthday of the country and whatnot. If you're going to make a jello mold or dish up some sherbet to coordinate with your old glory napkins and bunting, you're going to need blue. And like it or not, blue meant raspberry. But let's say you didn't like it then, and you don't like it now. You might be asking, why didn't they just use the blue dye with blueberry flavor? A valid question. The thing of it is, blueberries weren't really a thing. I mean, they were a thing that existed, of course. They'd been growing wild in the northern corners of the country since time immemorial. But outside of New England and the Pacific Northwest, and outside of their harvest season in the summer, and maybe a few jars of jam put up for the winter, most people weren't eating them. Blueberries have only been domesticated for about a century as of now. So if you're out grocery shopping in, say, the Midwest in decades past, blueberries weren't on your radar at all. In 1939, Americans were eating about 20 million pounds of blueberries. Most of these were wild-picked, and only half were eaten fresh. The other half were frozen or canned. 20 million pounds, or 9,071 metric tons, sounds like a lot. And it is a lot. But at the same time, we were eating 46 million pounds of figs. That's how low blueberries were in the rankings. But blueberries were beginning to wriggle into mainstream consciousness through things like repeated covers of Fats Domino's song Blueberry Hill and a character turning into a blueberry in Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. These days, we eat about 660 million pounds of blueberries, a sizable increase from its days as a fringe fruit. Bonus fact, another boost to blueberries came from the Jelly Belly Company, who created a blueberry jelly bean to make a red, white, and blue display for President Ronald Reagan's inauguration. Why all this focus on the color of food anyway? If the taste of food is a combination of the work of Messer's nose and tongue, how do the eyes claim to be so important? They're already the windows to the soul. Isn't that enough for them? No, they have to predispose our brains with ideas about the food we're going to eat. I mean, I'll concede that the eyes are the fastest and safest way to tell if your food is furry, green, sprouting, or that weird rainbow iridescence you get on meat sometimes that looks like an oily puddle in a parking lot. You can take in a lot of information about your food before you even touch it. If your steak has been properly grilled, if the broccoli was cooked to death plus 10 minutes, or how much red pepper flake your partner just shook over the entire pizza. Humans begin associating colors and foods from birth. And we carry these associations between tastes and colors throughout our lives. When you see a bowl of yellow pudding, for example, you're expecting vanilla or maybe banana. A red sports drink should taste at least vaguely of cherries. Your brain is setting up what your tongue will tell it. If, however, that pudding were pistachio flavored, 
or the sports drink was grape, you'd be thrown into a moment of cognitive dissonance as your brain tries to figure out what's going on. If the color of a food product doesn't match our expectations, we may perceive the taste and flavor differently. In a study published in the Journal of Food Science, researchers found that people confused flavors when a drink did not have the appropriate color. A cherry-flavored drink manipulated to be orange in color was thought to be an orange drink, and vice versa. There is an often-cited study from the early 1970s where study subjects were served a lovely plate of food in a room with colored lighting. When they were about halfway done, the light was switched over to normal lighting. It was only then that the test subjects saw that their steak was blue and their french fries were green, whereupon many of the subjects lost their appetite and a few even got sick. This study has been referenced and repeated for decades as a testament to how the color of food affects our perception and our appetite, and a lot of theories have been based on it. For example, fast food restaurants often use red, orange, and yellow in their branding and in the restaurant decorating because those colors are supposed to stimulate appetite and encourage you to eat faster so they can get more customers in. It's only too bad that that study never actually happened. Even still, color is, to put it mildly, important in food manufacturing and sale. Farmed salmon, for example, tend to have kind of grayish flesh, so it's colored a lovely orangey pink to match their wild cousins. Orange juice is made during the citrus harvest season and stored in giant silo tanks to be doled out throughout the year. In addition to having orange flavor added, it also gets a color boost to help it look more fresh-squeezed. And many products are colored to ensure a uniformity of appearance in the finished product, regardless of the specific shade of the raw ingredients. The desire to color food is hardly new. There was a big stink online a few years ago when people realized that Starbucks was using cochineal to make sure their strawberry frappuccinos were pink enough. I seem to have been at the time in the minority of people who weren't all that surprised, but that's because I had seen a news article a long while before that about Jewish women needing to be careful when shopping for lipstick. Why do Jewish women need to be wary of certain lipsticks and what does this have to do with Starbucks? Well, because cochineal, which is used in both applications, is dried and powdered insects, and insects aren't kosher. The cochineal beetle was once the go-to red food coloring in much of the world, including America. A pound of it requires 70,000 little beetles, give or take. It's perfectly safe to eat, but it has been gradually phased out because, you know, it's eating bugs. The appreciation for colorful food has been with us since the beginning. Roman and Egyptian feasts were famous for their visual appeal and extravagance. The Phoenicians used saffron to get a bright yellow color, even though it literally costs more than its weight in gold. And they got purple, an extremely rare and sought-after color usually reserved for the royals, with Tyrian blue, made from the mucus of sea snails. 
it would take until the 1850s to come up with a non-snail substitute. Think about that next time you're eating a rainbow unicorn cupcake. Then, as now, colors were added to make food appear better than it was, like juice or even henna dye, like you use in your hair, was added to wine to disguise the fact that it had been watered down. Or alum was added to bread flour to make the bread look whiter, white bread being fancier than brown bread. Medieval bakers kept up that tradition by adding bone meal or chalk to their flour in as large a quantity as they could get away with. This led to the creation of the first law that we know of specifically addressing food additives. The 13th century law read, If any default shall be found in the bread of a baker in this city, the first time let him be drawn upon a hurdle, from the guild hall to his own house, through the great street where there be most people assembled, and through the streets which are most dirty, with the faulty loaf hanging from his neck. Keep up your bready badness, and you'll be sent to the pillory. And if you still don't learn, your shop will be destroyed, and you'll be banned from the town. The Victorians were mad for food colors, or colors in general. This was the Industrial Revolution, when, long before the phrase, better living through chemistry was coined, anyone with a few beakers and a little gumption could find a way to make food, fabric, toys, anything you can think of, bright and bold. And hazardous. Don't be lulled into thinking that that bread size meant that there were a lot of consumer protection laws in place. Copper salts were used to keep pickles an inviting shade of green. Iron compounds made red sauces look redder, and if you needed orange or brown, there was always iron oxide, aka rust. In China, they noticed that the Europeans bought more green tea if it was, like, really green. So they added yellow gypsum and an arsenic-based dye called Prussian blue to make the colors brighter. The worst offender, taken as a class, was candy. Little children lured in by window displays of fabulously colored sweets might be ingesting red candies with mercury, yellow candies made with lead, and green candies with copper and arsenic. In 1856, William Henry Perkin discovered the first synthetic dye while trying to synthesize quinine, the cure for malaria, which he called movine, or mauve. Other chemists created similar dyes, and because these dyes were first produced from the byproducts of coal processing, they were called coal tar colors. Coal tar colors were cheap to manufacture, and this was the reason that they began to replace toxic metals and poisons. Because federal oversight of color additives didn't start until the 1880s. Color additives were among the first public initiatives undertaken by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Bureau of Chemistry, with their initial focus being on butter and cheese. Still, manufacturers were using all manner of toxins, irritants, sensitizers, and carcinogens. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. 
With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't until the Pure Food and Drug Act, a.k.a. the Wiley Act of 1906, to begin to curb the manufacture, sale, or transportation of adulterated or misbranded or poisonous or deleterious foods, drugs, medicines, and liquors, and for regulating traffic therein and for other purposes. This was the first time in the U.S. that broad measures were taken against additives that could be shown to be unhealthy. By 1930, the USDA Bureau of Chemistry, which was responsible for testing products and enforcing the Wiley Act, was spun off into its own department, now known as the National Food and Drug Administration. Between the Wiley Act and the FDA's formation, many synthetic colors were deemed illegal. By 1938, only 15 synthetic color additives were still legal for use. They fell into three categories those suitable for food, drugs, and cosmetics, those suitable only for drugs and cosmetics, and those suitable only for cosmetics. Of those 15, eight would be banned later on, as ever-improving science was able to show that they too were hazardous. Six of the remaining seven are still in use today. Blues number one and two, green number three, red number three, and yellows five and six. And everything had been perfectly fine and safe ever since. Apart from things like the rash of incidents in the 1950s where Halloween candies made with orange number one made several children sick. Red dye number two from earlier in the show was banned after tests showed a link between its carcinogenic properties and intestinal tumors. When you think about red food dye causing problems, you might be put in mind of the widespread belief that they cause hyperactivity in children. It's not just an urban legend. In recent years, six food dyes were identified as having a possible link to hyperactivity in children, including red number 40. The EU now requires that food containing these additives come with warning labels. Rather than mess up their carefully designed packaging with a scary warning, companies like Kellogg and Crafts have switched over to natural food colorings for the European market. Apparently, Murricans can have all the red dye they want. When Kermit the Frog sang It's Not Easy Being Green, 
he had no idea how hard it could be simply being near green, at least in the Victorian age. And that's thanks to one man in particular, German chemist Carl Wilhelm Scheele. Scheele could have been one of the most important names in chemistry, having discovered oxygen, molybdenum, chlorine, among others, and several organic acids from citric to hydrofluoric, though somebody else would inevitably get the credit. The only discovery not snatched out from under him was the green pigment copper arsenite, made by heating sodium carbonate and mixing in arsenious oxide and copper sulfate. Being both an irresistible vibrant shade of green and cheap to manufacture, it was an immediate success. Now it should go without saying that arsenic is bad news bears. It causes skin lesions, vomiting, diarrhea, cancer, and you know, death. And thanks in no small part to Scheele, the 1800s was lousy with arsenic. Positively chock-a-block. Sometimes a baker might be adding arsenic to his bread without even knowing it, because the miller had stretched the bread with substances containing arsenic. The green that Scheele discovered, called cupric green or Scheele's green, was used in wallpapers, dyeing cotton and linen for clothes, in paints, on toys, and even in food for fancy things like cake decorations and petty force. And while we're here today to talk about food, it's the green wallpaper that may be the most historically significant. Shields green wallpaper may have killed Napoleon Bonaparte. Tiny particles of the pigment tended to flake off and become airborne to then be absorbed by the lungs. Also, when the wallpaper became damp, it would release poisonous arsine gas. Now, after having had his derriere handed to him by the Duke of Wellington, Napoleon was exiled to the hot, humid island of St. Helena in 1815. Far from being marooned, Napoleon had some pretty sweet digs, including a room in shades of his favorite color, green. Six years later, he died of what was thought to be most likely stomach cancer, though analysis of samples of his hair have shown significant amounts of arsenic had been in his body for a prolonged period of time. In 1903, the UK did pass legislation on arsenic levels in food and drink. The law said nout about the wallpaper and the paint, because those had thankfully fallen out of fashion and no one was decorating with Shields Green anymore. You know what's always in style though? Hanging out with your fellow Brainiacs in the Brainiac break room on Facebook and in our subreddit, which you can reach by going to yourbrainonfacts.com slash social and clicking through. I don't know why I kept giving you those long URLs when I already made the social page. Just like if you want to buy a copy of the Your Brain on Facts book and support your local bookseller, all you have to do is go to yourbrainonfacts.com slash book. One thing about books, books have reviews. So does this podcast. That's as close as I'm getting to a segue today. We'll start with a book review, this one from Amazon customer, no other name given, that said, it is so easy to love this book because you enjoy it from the moment you open the package. The material of the book cover is super smooth and soft. You want to read it just to keep touching it. And who doesn't love the smell of a new book? A book where all five senses are included, 
You can listen to the podcast for your ear holes, LOL. Moxie does it again, her awesome velvety voice conveyed through the velvety feel of the cover. As for content, you will feel smarter and the knowledge vault grows with every turn of the page. Everybody loves the cover of the book. Next conference call I have with the publisher, I'm definitely going to mention that and ask her about it. Uh, We've also gotten some new reviews for the podcast over on podchaser.com. It is like the IMDB of podcasting. I pitch them just because it's a really good website to use, not because I'm getting anything out of it. And this review was left for us by another Karen. And I must say, as someone whose Christian name is in all of the nursery rhymes, I have all sympathies for all the perfectly lovely women out there who happen to be named Karen these days. But of the podcast, Karen says, It slices, it dices, it juliennes. This is the last podcast you'll ever need. Imagine NPR hosts reading Trivial Pursuit's original research while injecting appropriate yet colorful inflected shade where history and people got it wrong. You can gracefully transition your day from a morning run to a workplace emotional breakdown to a romantic evening by the fire with a charcuterie platter, all without changing your podcast listening. You guys write such good reviews. And if you've got an opinion about the book or the podcast, be sure that you post it so I can share it out. Now we go from the addition of color to food to the removal. When David Novak, chief operating officer for Pepsi, pitched the idea of a clear version of their flagship soft drink, other folks around the boardroom table were skeptical. History, a rather short sliver of history in fact, would prove them right. The company had put huge amounts of money into advertising this new product. The name Crystal Pepsi was on every tongue. The actual product, many fewer tongues. What made it fail so spectacularly? Just as most things in life are not black and white, but fall somewhere on a shade of gray, so do most things that happen have multiple causes. Let's set the scene. No earlier than that. No, earlier. Just hold the button down and I'll tell you when to stop. Okay, there. There we go. Clear Cola, as a concept, was set up for failure from the start, all the way back to the advertising of the very first sodas. As you might remember from episode 116, Fizz Fizz, sodas were originally medicinal tonics. From Coke's creation in 1892 and Pepsi's creation the following year, consumers have been conditioned to associate the flavor of cola with the color brown. That's actually thanks to the addition of caramel color, because cola nut extract is naturally green, but that's neither here nor there. As sodas moved out of medicine and into junk food, and new flavors were introduced, clear and pale-colored sodas were almost universally citrus-flavored. 
That's the way it was, and we liked it. We loved it. So big X next to looks like cola. Put an even bigger X next to tastes like cola. Early in the product's life, bottlers complained to Novak that Crystal Pepsi just didn't taste like Pepsi. They worried it would put people off, but Novak, quite pleased with his clever idea, wouldn't hear it. There was a big push in the market for things that were quote-unquote pure. Remember that clear shampoo in the weird trapezoidal bottle from like the late 80s or early 90s? It's not really germane to the topic, but it just sprang to mind. If you remember the name of it, though, hop on the social media, Facebook and Instagram, your brain on facts and Twitter at brain on facts pod and, you know, jog my memory. Another issue with Crystal Pepsi was that it was an answer to a question no one asked. Successful products tend to be those that resolve some pain point for the consumer. Though, as you may have read in the Your Brain on Facts book, sometimes all you have to do is convince people they have a problem so you can sell them the solution. Pepsi didn't do any of that. The marketing touted the amazing, awesome coolness of Crystal Pepsi, but never once told consumers why they should want it. Another key oversight was they didn't. Consumers were beginning to move away from sugary sodas to healthier or at least less unhealthy alternatives like bottled water. Part of Pepsi's plan seemed to be to let consumers think the drink was healthier, but you needed only turn the bottle around to see that it wasn't. A 12 ounce can of Crystal Pepsi And what is the point of putting it in an opaque container if the appearance is the main selling point? Still had 87% the calories of regular Pepsi. The only real distinction was that Crystal Pepsi was caffeine-free. While Pepsi was shelling out big marketing bucks, like licensing the hit Van Hagar single right now for TV commercials, which are already really expensive, their ever-present rival Coca-Cola was watching. Coke came up with a rather ingenious way to cut the legs out from under Pepsi's new product. Rather than the time-honored approach of they suck, we're great marketing, Coke opted for a bold we both suck strategy. Here's what I mean. Coke began selling crystal clear Tab. For persons of a certain age, Tab was Coca-Cola's first diet soda, debuting in 1963. 19 years before the launch of Diet Coke. And it hung in there until astonishingly last year. I say astonishingly because it was not regarded as tasting all that great. There were fears that the saccharin it was sweetened with would give you cancer. And never in my 41 years of life have I seen someone purchase, consume, or even be in possession of a tab. Coke made a spin-off of this limping turkey of a product that was just like Pepsi's hot new thing. But they weren't playing catch-up. It was an astute understanding of the consumer's mind. Tab Clear wasn't good. But it didn't have to be. In fact, the badness worked in their favor. When people began seeing Tab Clear, they associated the lack of color with the soda being diet. By extension, that meant all clear colas were diet. 
and diet sodas have never done as well as the full sugar originals. Once the damage to Crystal Pepsi was done, Coke discontinued Tab Clear. When Crystal Pepsi first appeared on shelves, it did okay, thanks in no small part to curiosity. But once people tried one, most didn't go back for a second. At the height of its popularity, Crystal Pepsi had managed to claw its way to a market share of about half of 1%. Even still, Novak maintained that it was, quote, the best idea I may have ever had in my career. Crystal Pepsi saw two re-releases, one in 2016, at the urging of nostalgic die-hard fans, probably the same people that got Surge relaunched, and again in 2017, when interest peaked after a certain video went viral. The video? A competitive eater drank a 20-plus-year-old bottle of original Crystal Pepsi and promptly threw up. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So what was the surrealist nightmare I was putting you through at the beginning of the show? It was Heinz Easy Squirt Ketchup. Though the name doesn't at all describe what the main focus was, these were ketchups in fun colors. Because I guess they thought children would want that. And they did sell a fair amount of them initially. But the thing is, ultimately, children aren't buying the groceries. Parents capitulated to buy one out of curiosity. And that was about it. Heinz Easy Squirt stayed on shelves for six years. About five years longer than it should have, if you ask me. And had a brief, if quiet, glimmer of resurgence in 2012 when they issued green ketchup for St. Patrick's Day. Thanks to our guest voice for this week, Dan Pugh from Bunny Trails, a word history podcast. Remember, you can always find the source material and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. And stay safe. love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.